Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to what is sadly the penultimate session of uh, the Two Towers class. Uh, the Two Towers class is kind of uh, uh, zoomed by here, I would say, uh, over this past month. Uh, today we are getting to some of my favorite parts of the entire Lord of the Rings. Um, I will... Uh, um, I, I will confess that the the final few chapters of the Two Towers are pretty much my favorite bit. I mean, I, I uh, you know I always have loved the Battle of Helm's Deep, and uh, uh, the Battle of Pelennor Field makes me weep every time. But uh, it's hard to beat Shelob's Lair and the choices of Master Samwise. So uh, next week, I'm particularly excited about. But Stairs of Kirith Ungol have always been a favorite of mine too. Um, so today we're going to get into looking at uh, what's going on with Frodo and uh, Gollum's big decision moment. That's where I hope to. That's where I hope to get to by the end. Um, but I want to begin by uh, going back uh, for a little bit to Faramir. That is, I'm not going backwards and talking about last class. I totally finished the stuff I wanted to say last time. But I didn't want to leave Faramir behind entirely, and I have the justification that he still is in the beginning of the first chapter we're supposed to talk about tonight without talking about Faramir's choice. We've been talking about choices and decisions and the premises of people's decisions, um, and I don't want to completely overlook the fact that Faramir, of course, has just made a pretty significant choice uh, in his decision to allow Fr Frodo to go free and to take Gollum under his protection. Um, in fact, did you notice the parallelism between what happens here with Faramir and Frodo and what happened with Aemir and Aragorn uh, back in back in chapter two? Um, this is uh, this is this is a very close parallel. Actually, both of them, both Aemir and Faramir, um, are not the Lord and cannot lay aside the law. Um, and the law is very strict and very clear about what they should do with strangers that they find wandering around. Faramir has a little bit more authority than Aemir, perhaps, but um, but the law is that he is uh, 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 going against is far more strict under the circumstances, since he is in fact in enemy-occupied territory uh, in a time of war. So. Both, again, both of them are, are faced, are confronted with very similar choices between a stern and clear law on the one hand, um, and on the other hand, a more sort of private duty, a, a challenge to their own sense of honor. Both of them, both Aemir and Faramir, can see that Aragorn and Frodo, respectively, um, seem to be, you know, men of honor and uh, going about, you know, our friends and, you know, are doing something which is, you know, would be good for them to help and not to hinder. Um, but yet they are faced with a moral dilemma. Do they obey the law or do they, in fact, set it aside? Um, possibly at the jeopardy uh, of themselves uh, by uh, going beyond their authority. And both of them choose to do the right thing and to do it for a very similar kind of reason. Both of them believe that the 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 thing that the other person... <laughs> trying to talk to both of them at the same time is making me get my pronouns all me messed up. Let me just talk about Faramir. Uh, uh, Faramir, you know, can see that what Frodo is doing is important. You know, he is here doing what... 
you know, I think what clearly what he would, uh, you know, believe Gandalf would want done. Frodo, you notice, sort of played that card at one point. Certainly, uh, he plays it with the sparing of Gollum. That is, this is what Gandalf would clearly want if, uh, would tell you to do if he were here, um, as Faramir obviously trusts Gandalf's judgment. Um, but both of them are put into a, both Aemir and Faramir put into a parallel situation. Now, the difference, um, there's a difference in scale, I would say, a significant difference in scale. Um, with Aragorn and Aemir, the main emphasis that Aragorn has is you know he said you know the, the 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 sort of the trump card that Aragorn plays in his discussion with Amir is uh you know in days of your nobody uh, you know no man of the mark would have c- tried to compel somebody to abandon a quest such as mine right you know you you are honorable people um all honorable people of the mark unless things are much changed in the mark um they would honor and respect the purpose you know my pursuit of my friends who have been kidnapped by orcs um, and would not seek to get in the way of that just in order to fulfill this law. Um, with with uh, Frodo and Faramir, the situation is much more difficult. Um, Frodo in, ends up <clears throat> through uh, Sam's kind of inter- uh, inadvertent assistance um, revealing his quest to Faramir. And so Faramir has to make the choice. Does he go along with what Gandalf and Elrond and Galadriel have apparently all, you know, all been fine with? Does he let the quest continue, or does he bring the Ring of Power back to Denethor? One thing, there, there are several ways in which I am uh, sort of negatively... Uh, uh, thankful for the uh, uh, sort of awful depiction of Faramir in the films. That is, I'm not thankful that Faramir was depicted that way, but there are several ways in which the depiction of Faramir uh, in the films really uh, helps to throw Faramir's true awesomeness in the books into much uh, into much sharper relief. Um, you know, for instance, the choice that he makes in the films. Uh, on the one hand, you know, his choice to bring the ring back to Denethor um, is, uh, you know, if you can get past, you know, your Tolkien purist instincts, which very understandably are screaming, Faramir would never do that. This is awful. I know that's what Tolkien fans are always saying at that time in the film. But if you can kind of set that aside or, or quiet that voice just a little bit, um, in fact, what movie Faramir does makes sense and is actually, in many ways, the much more sensible, um, clearly the safest um, thing for him to do. Um, that's obviously... And, and he knows it. I mean, even in the book, he knows when he gets back and reports to his father, this is a good chance that his father is going to be really mad. Um, a, a, a good chance that his father would not have done the same thing that he did. Um, so the fact that Faramir does what he does is not a given. Um, and I think that sometimes uh, we can we can take for granted how significant a decision Faramir makes to, on his own authority, off his own bat, just say, okay, I'm going to permit the Ring of Power to be taken by these two hobbits, accompanied by nobody other than that murderous, treacherous creature um, whose honesty and faithfulness, I, I, of whose honesty and faithfulness I have deep suspicions, um, 
with only uh, only accompanied by him, I'm going to let these two hobbits take the Ring of Power off into Mordor. We've talked before about how that plan doesn't seem like a good plan. It doesn't seem like a practical plan. It doesn't seem uh, like a winning strategy. Um, so Faramir has to sign on to that non-winning strategy, knowing much less than Elrond and Gandalf and Galadriel do about the whole big picture. And he has to do that against not only the sort of advice, or, but, but against the expressed orders uh, of the express orders of his father. Not that his father has sent express orders of, like, if you find the Ring of Power, do make sure you bring it back. But rather, you know, I, you know he, he, he's got to know that if Frodo and Sam are any kind of an exception to that law about not letting strangers wander free uh, in their realm at this time, the exception's got to be in the other direction. Like, I would think that Denethor would say, no, you should make twice as certain to bring them in, right? Because we need to make sure what's going on here. We need to, we, you know, this is, this, is some, this is something that the Lord of Minas Tirith would, uh, would really probably like to make the call on himself um, rather than have Faramir doing that in the field. So, uh, uh, so again, it's it's a big deal um, what what Faramir uh, chooses to do. And you're right, Sharon. Sharon says uh, Faramir doesn't try to justify or rationalize the law. He knows the cost of his choice. Yeah, he, you know, he says, you know, my life will be forfeit if I choose if I choose a miss. Um, and of course, Amir remember, also puts himself in jeopardy. He is, in fact, in prison uh, when Aragorn returns, and he mentions, he tells Aragorn explicitly that I'm putting um, perhaps my very life um, in trust, you know, that you're going to keep your word and that you're going to come uh, and return these horses uh, and, and present yourself to the king. Um, Frodo is not given any such condition. Again, notice uh, the the under much more drastic cir- circumstances, Faramir makes a much more drastic choice. Um, and he uh, gives him free run of, of Gondor and, its, uh, and, uh, and all of its ancient bounds for a year and a day. Um, you know, he, he lets him go without qualification. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and as Emily points out, we see again someone wise making the seemingly foolish decision. Yeah, the line between wisdom and foolishness, uh, you know, true wisdom very often does seem to look like foolishness uh, in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and those of you, when I say that, uh, those of you who are suddenly having uh, New Testament verses uh, running through your heads, I think are correct. Uh, I think that uh, the, you know... Um, that First Corinthians chapter one theme of you know the wisdom of God seeming as foolishness to men uh, is always been something that I think is is a concept that we can see sort of running throughout this because it's it's very it's very consistent. This is one of the things I was wanting to look at back when we were talking about Saruman. Saruman's choices are wise from you know, the point of view of any kind of pragmatic uh, person, uh, what he has done and is choosing to, okay, maybe turning against Saruman, trying, or Sauron and trying to set up on his own is a bit of a, is, is a bit risky, a bit of a gamble, but really actually, um, not necessarily, not so much because, uh, because of the distance separating them and uh, because, um, you know, there, there, there are lots of ways he could play that. And, of course, indeed, he is at least pretending to be loyal. Um, it's really only 
these darned Ents that show up unexpectedly and wreck his plans, and really, who could be expected to calculate on the forest marching on Isengard, uh, after all? Um, yeah. Interesting. Carissa says, in Faramir's case, I hesitate to think of it as a choice. He is ruled by humility and wisdom, and recognizes this quest is larger than himself, and therefore he relinquishes control, and his only choice is in the advice he gives. Um, I see what you mean, Carissa. It's not the same thing. Notice I'm not trying to parallel um, Faramir's choice with, say, Aragorn's choice of whether or not to go after Frodo or whether or not to chase after Marion Pippin. Um, that, I think, is a very different kind of choice. You're right. Um, but he is making a choice. In, you know, he has to decide his course of action. And remember, rather a big deal is made of that, in fact. Um, uh, you, you know, there's that there's that moment when Frodo, using rather, uh, you know, sort of formalized language, says, you know, but Lord Faramir, you have not yet, you know, decreed your judgment concerning the said Frodo. Um, you know, that he, he is, uh, he is awaiting not just a choice, not just a decision by Faramir, but a doom. And that word is used here. Faramir decrees a doom here. He makes a judgment. Like, as a wigged judge would do here. He sets himself up um, as as a judge in, in you know, almost like a judge in a court of law um, here, decreeing something. Um, so in a, and this is a sense, in a sense, also going back to the question of his relationship to the law. Um, he does, in fact, take to himself under the restrictions that he is living under. That is, he can't permanently set it aside, but he does set it aside for a year and a day, right? He gives himself that much authority. Um, but he does, in fact, decree something about the law. Aragorn doesn't talk, or Aemir, sorry, doesn't talk like that, wouldn't talk like that. Um, he would not decree dooms uh, when he's talking to Aragorn. All he can do with Aragorn is make a personal decision, give a pledge of faith in Aragorn, and insist and hope that Aragorn will reciprocate that personal pledge of faith and show his own personal Aragorn's own personal faith back to Aemir and justify his own decision. Faramir is decreeing a doom. He's, uh, he's passing a sentence uh, on Frodo, who is guilty of trespass. You know, he's... You know, he's... Uh, um, he is, in fact, in contravention of the law that nobody is supposed to be traveling in Athelion. I mean, that's, that's uh, um, you know, Faramir's got him banged to rights on that one. Um, so Faramir is passing a doom in that way. So, Carissa, in that sense, I, I, I do say it definitely is a choice, but I do see what you mean, um, that when he's making that choice, in the end, it's not about simply what he wants to do. And this is, I think, the major contrast, again, that we can see that the film really brings out for me, right? Um, Faramir, in the film, makes the wrong choice. It's a very understandable choice. It's even a very defensible choice. But the reason he makes it in the film is clearly because of the the rather more exaggerated daddy issues that Faramir, in that film, that movie Faramir has. Now, Book Faramir has daddy issues, too. Let's not uh, have any two ways about that. And it's actually the thing I like best about movie Faramir. Um, I think that Peter Jackson, obviously, he does make it much bigger. Uh, he gives the the whole uh, father-son issues uh, with uh, Denethor and Boromir and Faramir. Gives that much more prominence in the film. But it's there in the books. And um, I do think that um, that that's... 
that's both a defensible and an interesting move on Peter Jackson's part. But again, but the point is, Carissa, coming back to your point, movie Faramir makes that decision, and it's motivated by a personal agenda, right? You know, he says he's going to send uh, uh, Frodo back to Minas Tirith, and you know, he he quotes out of context uh, in one of those moments which is which o- always kind of strikes me as sort of surreal seeing the films and knowing the books really well when they quote a line totally out of context and even switch it around and reverse it um, when he says you know tell him that Faramir sends him a mighty gift right um, again you can clearly see that he is motivated by these kinds of personal um, you know he's not motiv- he's not motivated by justice or wisdom, he's motivated by his desire to please his father and his hope that if he accomplishes this, if he does this thing that of which his father, he hopes, would very much approve, that his father will then love him as much as he loved Boromir. Um, and that's exactly, Carissa, as you're pointing out, what the, um, uh, what the book Faramir sets aside almost completely. He's willing to take the consequences, as Sharon pointed out, but he um, he does not allow any of those kind of personal concerns to factor in. Uh, and he, uh, as you say, I, as you say, he is simply ruled ruled by humility and wisdom, as Carissa says. Uh, and I would I would add, uh, and therefore rules through uh, humility and wisdom as well. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, Mike says... Uh, uh, hi, Mike, good to see you again. Uh, Mike Thurway of the Silmarillion Seminar, always good to see some of the old Silmarillionaires uh, back in the net mood here. Um, Mike says that he takes the leap that Gandalf takes, but he views the quest in his choice as hopeless. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't... Say, he says he doesn't expect to see Frodo again, right? You know, that he doesn't think going to Carathongo is a good idea. He doesn't think that following Gollum is a good idea. Everything, you know, in some ways, um, you know, I said he's working on less information than Galadriel and Gandalf was. Well, in some ways, in some ways he has more information. That is, concerning the actual plan, um, the last any of them, Gandalf, Elrond, Galadriel knew, was Galadriel, she's the one with the most, with that, you know, when she encounters Frodo, the most recent information. And all they're doing is sending the party down towards Mordor, and they don't know how things are going to go. Now, here's Faramir, knowing exactly where they're going to go, and that Gollum, who is uh, being corrupted by malice and conceiving treachery, and with murder in his heart, is leading them to this place, to Morgulvale and, and, and to Kirathungal, which he believes to be a complete disaster. Knowing that, so it's, this is not just, gosh, what are the odds of, of uh, you know, a halfling finding his way into Mordor? Well, whatever they were, they're worse now. Faramir has reason to think that whatever odds would have been placed on Frodo's success from Rivendell or even from Lorien, they're much lower now, um, knowing exactly where they're going. And yet, he, he lets them go. Um, and he seems to let them go because he recognizes, you know, thinking of Aragorn's phrase of, you know, the fate of the bearer is in my hands no longer. Uh, I think that there, you know, Faramir does recognize there's a bigger thing going on here. Um, and that, you know, uh, in one sense, it's kind of above his, uh, above his, his, his pay grade. Alyssa makes a good, a good counter argument. Um, Alyssa says, uh, is reminding us of, of Frodo's counter argument, uh, 
where, where he says that you know, would you have two dead cities grinning uh, at each other, uh, you know, uh, across a land filled with rottenness? Um, Alyssa points out through that quotation that Frodo is pointing him in the direction of at least one personal motivation. That is, if you love your city, you will not send me there. Um, so it would be foolish to do that. That's true, Alyssa. That doesn't say that he has to let him go to Kirithungal. Um, uh, but, uh, but yes, you're right, that Frodo does, does go there. You know, he does, he does play that. Um, but, actually, you know, it's funny, Alyssa, I was actually thinking, um, uh, I was actually thinking when I was reading that this past time, that Frodo's counter-argument, um, is kind of specious. It's, it's, it's kind of a weak counter-argument. I mean, not that, uh, not that he isn't right to say, um, you know, that it would be a bad idea to bring this thing that drove Boromir mad with desire to Minas Tirith, that that might have some, you know, bad outcome. That certainly seems like a perfectly plausible statement. But the way that he manipulates the conversation at that point, Frodo, I mean, the way that Frodo manipulates the conversation so that Basically, he, seem, he he presents it as if there are only two options. Option one is to let us go and go on to Kirith Ungol following Gollum. The other option is to bring us back to Minas Tirith, have somebody claim the ring for their own, and have you know two cities of Minas Morgul staring at each other. Um, I, I I don't think that's true. There are other options, and you know the way that he sort of characterizes any alternative uh, to that again, I think is actually. Um, uh, I, I don't find it a terribly convincing argument uh, in that there's certainly Faramir has more options to him uh, than just those two. But, um, uh, yeah. Um, Rachel has a, a good question, and Rachel, I don't know the answer to this. Rachel says, I've always wondered um, why Faramir didn't tell Frodo what was supposed to be in Kirith Ungol. He speaks Elvish, so he must have known that it means the pass of the spider. Um, all I'd say about that is that he might know that that's the translation, but he might not know what that means or that it's literal. Um, that is to say, there are lots of reasons why, just because you know that something is called the Pass of the Spider, um, doesn't mean that the only obvious explanation of that fact is that there's actually a huge, ginormous, monstrous, sentient, evil, ancient spider that lives up there. Um, in fact, I, I would argue that that's one of the less plausible explanations for that. Uh, otherwise, it's not the first one that would occur to me. Um, there aren't that many Shelobs in the world, after all. In fact, there are no other Shelobs in the world. So, uh, yeah, and, and anymore, that is. So, uh, it's not the obvious explanation. He All he says about it, I mean, he says that, uh, you know, when Kirithungal is named, then Men of Lore Blanche. You know, he's like, it clearly... There are evil stories about this. There is some evil associated with Kirith Ungol. He tell he does tell him that much. He doesn't seem to have more specific information. Um but um yeah, yeah. Um yeah, good. Um let's see. Um Oh, yeah, Yana, thanks for mentioning this. Um, 
it is worth mentioning in passing. Uh, Yana points out that uh, you know he noticed that Frodo threatens to use the ring again to force Gollum to do something when he's getting him out of the pool. Thought that was worth mentioning. Yeah, not only that, Yana threatens to murder him with the ring. In fact, now he doesn't mean it. You know, he isn't actually planning to do that. But but you're right. Um, this is that's that's a level up from. You know, in the last need, I would put the ring on and tell you to jump off a cliff. Um, you know, if you don't come, I will put on Precious and say, make him swallow the bones and choke, right? That's, uh, and again, Frodo is being merciful and he feels awful about even appearing treacherous to Gollum. He knows he's, he knows he's saving Gollum's life, but he knows it looks bad and that Gollum is going to think he's betraying him. So we can see, you know, Frodo's good heart in that whole, um, in that whole, uh, um, area. But, but it's still pretty sketchy, isn't it? I mean, even if he doesn't mean it at all, uh, it is, I think, pretty, pretty suggestive. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Alyssa points out, uh, correction, that literally in Sindarin, um, in the Lord of the Rings era Sindarin, um, Kirith Ungol would, would more literally be gloomy pass. Um, so, uh, you know, sort of shadowy pass. In which case it would just blend in with all the, you know, some mountains of shadow, um, gloomy pass. Of course it's gloomy. What else would it be? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. So, so th- there wouldn't even be that direct a cue. Um, good, good. Susan, a good point. I mean, you're right. <clears throat> Susan says, I've always wondered why Faramir didn't send more help with Frodo and Sam. This seems to be Gorfindel and the Council of Elrond all over again. Um, yeah, like not even like, you know, what What about, uh, you know, Mablong and Damrod, right? You know, they, they, you know, Anborn, is he busy right now? You know, can he spare one or two guys to, to go along? They wouldn't hurt, right? Would they? Um, yeah, Susan, I, I see your thinking. But again, exactly, you're exactly right that it's the same thinking as saying, okay, no, maybe Gorfindel couldn't do it by himself, but seriously, uh, you know, he'd be in that gain, right? I mean, like, it's like, what's the downside? Um, right, so in, in other words, we can see, um, we can see that he is um, following very closely in the footsteps uh, of the kind of uh, wise, though apparently foolish, actions that the other uh, wise people were doing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Sharon points out which men could he trust in the presence of the ring. Agreed, yeah, Diego was wondering the same thing. Would other men be able to resist the ring? Well, first of all, they... I mean, I guess they would have to know about it. Um... Yeah, I mean, we can, we can, I mean, that's pure extrapolation. Had Faramir considered sending people with him and rejected it, what would be his reasons? You know, we don't get any of that. So this, this becomes pure, um, pure, you know, sort of fiction on our part, um, trying to, to, to hash that out. Um, maybe I'm a little bit resistant, I have to say. Um, the movies made a big deal of the fact that, you know, men are weak. Men are particularly susceptible uh, to this. I'm a little resistant to that. Um, I I think the evidence is a little shaky on that point, actually. Um, uh, that, 
men are much more likely uh, than others. I mean, clearly, the only people who are actually safer categorically are hobbits. Um, that's why it makes sense uh, that the small should do this. Um, but yeah, Carolyn is pointing out the same thing about the fear of others that he sent with him being corrupted. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with Trish that uh, after Frodo's experience with Boromir, he might likely turn down companions, um, uh, and perhaps his paranoia would be increased by his own increasing relationship with the Ring. All quite plausible. <clears throat> um, but I think the simpler answer is just that Fro Faramir sees, like, basically the decision, the decision that he makes is what you are doing, you are, you're operating on a higher doom than, than mine, right? You know, you are, um, you're in my court right now, you know, I am your judge right now, but uh, you know, there's something much bigger going on here. I recognize that. Um, I see that, you know, again, the doom that Frodo is following is something he's not going to tamper with. So he's he, so his decision is just to say, I'm going to, you were on your way. I'm going to let you on your way. I'll help you all that I can. I'll give you food. I'll, I'll, I'll make these awesome stabs for you. I will, uh, 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 you know, I'll lay a blessing upon you and a curse upon those who would betray you. I'll do it. But but I'm just going to let you go because you were doing your thing and I, I, I see that your thing is really important and I'm going to get out of the way of your thing. Um, I agree, Mike. It certainly is a harder doom. Um, definitely. Um, so anyway, so that's my reading. Not any kind of sort of pragmatic things about like that it would actually be a bad idea to send people. Perhaps I'm not saying that there's no merit in any of those arguments, but, uh, but I don't think that that's what's motivating um, Faramir. Um, anyway, so anyway, so I, I got. I just wanted to say one or two very brief things about Faramir there, and then a after you see that the, you know we've only uh, been talking about this for like you know three to five minutes, then we're going to move on because um, you have of course become accustomed to how efficient uh, we are with this now. Um, I want to talk about the crossroads, uh, and again, I want to uh, at the risk of. Uh, of taking extra time, I want to pause and look at stuff that I almost never get to look at when I teach this book. That is, thinking about uh, the, as in the passages we were discussing last time, where we can see Tolkien kind of placing a metaphorical significance on some of the features of the landscape that they're passing through, I want to draw our attention again to some of these uh, moments of landscape description that Tolkien does. Tolkien, Tolkien's narrative style, of course, is very heavy on landscape description. Everybody who dislikes Tolkien, and specifically Tolkien's style, always complains bitterly <laughs> about this fact. Everybody, all, all, all the Tolkien haters can't stand the fact that he spends so much time describing the the uh, the plant life and, and everything else that's going on around them. Um, but I wanted to just look at a, a couple uh, sort of shortish passages here um, be, and because I think if you act, if we actually pay attention to the landscape description, there is much virtue in it, of course. It's not only the fact that we we can sort of visualize this. I mean, I think there's a reason why, there are several reasons why the world that Tolkien describes in his book 
is so powerful and why even you know it's not just with the lord of the rings it's not just the characters that he wrote it's not just the story that he tells it's the world that he creates that people want to enter into and live there they really care about that world um and it and invest their imaginations very heavily in that world and that kind of a reaction to a book is very unusual. Again, there are lots of great stories. There are lots of great characters. There are very few books that inspire the same kind of investment in, involvement with the whole world, the whole sub-creation that Tolkien does. And I do think that his uh, intimate descriptions of that world and its landscapes are a part of that. Um, But that's not what I'm focusing on. Um, what I am, what I want to focus on, um, is yes, <laughs> Emily says, uh, as uh, as my friend says, it takes a hundred pages to go one step in the forest. Uh, sometimes it might seem like that. Anyway, I, I just wanted to, to to show one example of some of the things that I think we can see happening, um, w- sort of extra layers that Tolkien gives to some of his his landscapes. So this is uh, the three of them beginning to approach the crossroads in Athelion. As soon as they were down, they went on again with Gollum leading eastwards up the dark, sloping land. They could see little, for the night was now so deep that they were hardly aware of the stems of trees before they stumbled against them. The ground became more broken and walking was more difficult, but Gollum seemed in no way troubled. He led them through thickets and wastes of brambles, sometimes round the lip of a deep cleft or dark pit, sometimes down into black bush-shrouded hollows and out again. But if ever they went a little downward, always the further slope was longer and steeper. They were climbing steadily. At their first halt they looked back, and they could dimly perceive the roofs of the forest they had left behind, lying like a vast, dense shadow, a darker night under the dark, blank sky." There seemed to be a great blackness, looming slowly out of the east, eating up the faint, blurred stars. Later, the sinking moon escaped from the pursuing cloud, but it was ringed all about with a sickly yellow glare. Now, part of the reason for this... the the One of the trends I would point to in this description is them passing into darkness. We know that the crossroads is a big deal, right? We we, we have this crossroads. It's not just, you know, a map feature here. Um, And the fact that it gets a chapter title talking about it and, you know, the sort of the obvious metaphorical significance of of, of crossroads, um, you know, as sort of a moment of decision or a moment of transition... um, when they go to the crossroads, they've been in Athelion. Athelion has been awesome. Now they're finally really approaching the land of Mordor. They approached it once already, and then they kind of backed off. Now they're approaching it again and preparing to enter it. So, of course, they're traveling into darkness. They're moving into shadow. That is being accentuated, of course, by the fact that at this moment, that blackness from Mordor, that, uh, you know, that... Uh, that evil cloud cover, that, that, uh, that Mordor murk um, that is going to be blotting out the sun and the moon and the stars, um, is creeping over them. But again, it's, from a narrative standpoint, not a coincidence that at this point, as they're crossing through Athelion, coming up upon the crossroads and moving towards Minas Morgul, that's the moment when the darkness begins to envelop them. And we get these, the descriptions of the broken and difficult land, the thickets and wastes of brambles. Um, Athelion, 
presumably there were lots of brambles in the rest of Athelion. You see those a lot in forests. Um, but now the way that he is describing it through thickets and wastes of brambles, um, I like even the the uh, sound of those words um, with all those S's and T's. Um, you know, the, the the going around clefts and pits, it's beginning to be, you know, more more broken, more rough, more, um, you know, the, the land itself is sort of becoming more sinister. The forest that they left behind, which was a nice forest, remember, it was quite lovely. Now it's lying like a vast, dense shadow um, as they begin to move into, uh, as they begin to move across the, uh, towards the crossroads uh, into Mordor. The description of the crossroads itself is, is really cool. I'd love to read more of it, um, but let me restrict myself to one thing. And again, I point this out because it's exactly the kind of thing that's so easy to skim, or even if you don't skip anything, to kind of let your mind go to sleep a little bit. Um, I mean, it's a very natural tendency that a lot of people have when you're reading a long description like this. Some people really get into that, and that's really cool, but a lot, but it's really easy to just kind of let your mind drift. You know, as you're like, okay, descript- forest, 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 when is something going to happen? When is somebody going to say something? It's, it's, sometimes you have to remain actively vigilant to keep that from happening. Um, and, uh, um, but anyway, so here's an example of, of a, a little moment that's kind of easy to miss uh, if, you, uh, if you do that. Here's the actual crossroads itself. Presently, not far ahead, looming up like a black wall, they saw a belt of trees. As they drew nearer, they became aware that these were of vast size, very ancient, it seemed, and still towering high, though their tops were gaunt and broken, as if tempest and lightning blast had swept across them, but had failed to kill them or to shake their fathomless roots. It's just trees, right? It's just trees around the ancient crossroads. But, of course, again, I think that we can see another metaphor here. These trees here seem to be, you know, kind of like the road, kind of like that window on the west. This, these, these trees sound like Numenor again to me, or like the, the, the Numenorean realms in exile here. Um, we have here the ancient tree, to use Faramir's awesome word. Uh, you know, these trees, as if they were trees planted by the Numenorians here at the crossroad, which have now, which are now very ancient and of vast size, we have them still towering high. Um, we have their fathomless roots being unshakable, but yet we have their tops gaunt and broken as if tempest and lightning blast had swept across them. Um, this is like, again, th- there's there's a way in which this works as a metaphor for the particularly stubborn element of uh, of those things that the Numenorians have planted. The things that the Numenorians have planted have been damaged over time, but you know, not everything crumbles with time. Some things lay down roots, and over time their roots are so deep that they can't be stirred uh, anymore. Um, and take a whole lot of killing. Um, and these trees are still there and still surviving. Um, And again, I think, so to me, having just come from Faramir, you know, and then come to these trees, I can't help but sort of associate the two of them. Um, It seems to me like a kind of a natural invitation here. Um, But, um... (laughs) Mike rejects as monstrous this uh, idea that people would skim and not pay attention to the descriptions and stuff. Um, uh, uh... Yeah. 
Alyssa says, you know, their deep roots are not reached by the tempest. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You can see a clear a clear parallel again. Um and um of course, yes, uh, uh, several of you are anticipating <clears throat> exactly what we're going to talk about next, which is, of course, the statue of the ancient king. Um, now, I talked about these trees first because, you know, it's again, it's one of those moments where the, the, the king, the decapitated king statue at the crossroads, Frodo overtly points to that as a symbol, right? Um, you know, he's like, he, he he takes that as a symbol of hope. It strikes him as a symbol of hope, and he interprets it symbolically. Um, that's very clear. Um, my point is that there are other places where that kind of interpretation, I think, is invited. Um, well, it's not forced upon us, but I think it's invited, and we can see it working um, in some really in some really f- um, fun ways. Um, yeah, I agree, Brianna. The juxtaposition between these headless trees uh, and the the uh, the headless uh, stone king. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I don't think that that's a coincidence here. But let's look at the stone king. I know we're all burning to look at the stone king, so let's look at him. Standing there for a moment, filled with dread. <clears throat> oh, by the way, and I, I, I do welcome observations on this. Tell me what Tell me what you notice. Tell me what you guys find especially interesting about the description here. Standing there for a moment, filled with dread, Frodo became aware that a light was shining. He saw it glowing on Sam's face beside him. Of course it's glowing on Sam's face. Where else would it be shining? Um, If there's a light in the darkness, where else would you expect to see it except in Sam's face? Sorry. Turning towards it, he saw, beyond an arch of boughs, the road to Osgiliath, running almost as straight as a stretched ribbon down, down into the west. There, far away, beyond sad Gondor, now overwhelmed in shade, the sun was sinking, finding at last the hem of the great slow-rolling pall of cloud, and falling in an ominous fire towards the yet unsullied sea. The yet unsullied sea. The brief glow fell upon a huge sitting figure, still and solemn as the great stone kings of Argonoth. The years had gnawed it, and violent hands had maimed it. Its head was gone and in its place was set in mockery a round, rough-hewn stone, rudely painted by savage hands in the likeness of a grinning face with one large red eye in the midst of its forehead. Upon its knees and mighty chair and all about the pedestal were idle scrawls mixed with the foul symbols that the maggot folk of Mordor used. Suddenly, caught by the level beams, <clears throat> Frodo saw the old king's head. It was lying rolled away by the roadside. "'Look, Sam,' he cried, startled into speech. "'Look, the king has got a crown again.' The eyes were hollow, and the carven beard was broken, but about the high stern forehead there was a coronal of silver and gold. A trailing plant with flowers like small white stars had bound itself across the brows, as if in reverence for the fallen king, and in the crevices of his stony hair yellow stone crop gleamed. "'They cannot conquer for ever,' said Frodo. And then suddenly the brief glimpse was gone, The sun dipped and vanished, and as if at the shuddering of a lamp, black night fell. Okay. Tell me what you notice. Good. Good. (laughs) 
Yes, Emily is pointing out more setting suns. Yes, just like we had in the window on the west, we now you know the light of the the brilliant light of the shining sun, um, you know, sort of magically transforming the 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 curtain of the waterfall um, into all those you know the the the, the gorgeous light and colors. Um, so now the uh, the sun the the setting sun just before it sets comes down under the edge of the shadow. Um, comes out of the shadow and is about to go into the yet unsullied sea and in that brief time in the middle shines outward and falls uh, as it is falling in an ominous fire. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Tom points out it's that mythic tone again. Yes, I agree. You can see <clears throat> there is, uh, although... Tolkien's narrative descriptions, you know, tend to be stately of diction uh, at most times. I do think that we can see an, an elevation here, um, that he is, uh, Tom, I agree, is kind of shifting into that kind of mythic register here. Um, the yet unsullied sea particularly jumps out of me in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. K points out that you know the uh, the the orc head that is put up on top. You know the the stone that the orcs put is characteristic of the enemy's work. He doesn't create or subcreate in response in respectful response to beauty or even trying to create mu- beauty. He mimics and twists. Yes. Yes. Um, good. Mike points out that the passage is bookended with dread. Yes, black night falls at the end, and they are standing filled with dread at the beginning, and what comes in the middle, of course, as Carissa has pointed out, is hope, right? And that, I think, is a really important element in this passage. Um, Fro- we, we get, of course, the uh, sort of... the way in which this sort of serves as a prophecy, right? Especially since the 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 little flowers are like stars um uh like the star uh you know that aragorn binds across his brow um you know when he returns um it does uh it certainly seems like a, a clear prophecy that the king will return but notice it's not what frodo says exactly um perhaps Frodo sees that, he does emphasize the king has got a crown again, right? And, you know, he knows Aragorn, and he knows what Aragorn is doing, and so presumably contained within that statement, look, the king has got a crown again, um, he is implying, see, like, that's, you know, that that's a good omen, right? If it's an omen, it's a good one. Um, but notice that Frodo doesn't just say, hey, um, maybe that means we're going to win, or at least Aragorn's going to win, right? But he he he... The conclusion he takes from it is much broader than that. They cannot conquer forever, said Frodo. At the end of the day, the orcs who decapitated the statue of the king and set up the mockery, the the grinning face in mockery, um, is... uh, um, is yet, and Thomas pointing out that grinning is only used here and uh, in that passage we were talking about before about the two, the two dead cities grinning at one another uh, across a dead land filled with rottenness. Um, uh, grinning in this context certainly seems to be a, an ominous word. 
But anyway, um, the orcs who set up this head, who de- decapitated the king and set up this head, in the end, the joke is on them. They can't conquer forever. Um, and the king, ha- the king has not only been crowned again despite their efforts, the king has been crowned again because of their efforts, um, as it's unlikely that the trailing vines that have worked their way around the head as it lies on the ground would probably not have ascended all the way to the top of the colossal statue uh, and uh, and wound around the brows of the king up there. Um, but again, not, in, not even in spite of, but because of the works of evil. Um, good can triumph. Evil cannot conquer forever. Um, it's only a brief glimpse, and it's soon gone, and blackness falls again. But it's a glimpse, and what it gives Frodo a glimpse of is not just specific concrete hope for what for their undertaking, but a much broader sort of point of view. And thinking back to the question of faith, of Frodo's faith that we were talking about before, um, this seems to be something which is an encouragement for him, which leads him to hope in this kind of... Uh, this kind of broader way. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Ooh, Don, I like that. Um, Don is saying the, uh, is thinking about the, oh, I'll just read Don's whole comment. The straight road, not the bent road, that leads to the West, capital W, West, uh, that ta- uh, that takes uh, th- it's all right. I'll come in again. It's the straight, not bent road that leads into the capital W West that takes their glance to the unconquered head of the king. Um, yes, the straightness of that road may perhaps help us to, especially since often the direction of that straight road lies the yet unsullied sea. May perhaps remind us of that other straight path um, that leads away from the bent world and towards the undying lands. Um, so yeah, that connection, I like that connection, Don. I think that's cool. Um, yeah, good. And Chris, I agree. The idea of Gondor overwhelmed in shade is talking about more than just the fact that the sun has gone down. Absolutely. And see, this is the kind of thing, just like with those that, the, the description of the trees, so many times, um, those, that kind of language, right? Which is, on the one hand, it's just a description, right? He's doing lots of description. Here's some more description. But many times, the, the words that he chooses to use to describe something have a resonance beyond the mere literal signification of those, of those words. And sometimes, as in a passage like this, it's pretty obvious, again, indeed, Frodo himself is doing symbolic interpretation of the tableau that he's seeing here. But... Um, uh, but but it's 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 a good example I think that we should kind of keep in mind. Um, okay, good. Um, yeah. Um, good, as Susan points out, even if Frodo fails, they will not conquer forever. That is perhaps why this is a very this why this is a particularly potent uh reminder of hope for frodo um yeah it's nice to think that this is a good omen that they're going to win you know and that uh, aragorn's going to become king and everything's going to turn out great but uh but that's not really the point there's more to it than that yeah yeah um 
Good. Tom says they cannot conquer forever is more defiance than hope. Um, it's not a positive expression of what may come, but a negative expression of what won't continue. Um, this reminds me of Aragorn looking out for the dawn at Helm's Deep. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. A bunch of uh, you guys have made a bunch more really interesting observations, uh, and I wish I could go through them all, but I should. Um, I should. Uh, I should move. On. Okay. All right. One last one. Brianna says the king here is decapitated and thus would seem to be dead, but is still victorious. Um, yeah, there is a sense, Brianna, isn't there, of something like resurrection here, right? You know, the king that was dead is now rising again uh, in his royalty. And again, that's like, um, not literally, of course, what Aragorn is doing, but it's like that. Um, Yeah, good, good. Um, But yes, Frodo's hope uh, is, I think, uh, one of the things that I really wanted to point to here. And I think it's interesting to put this next to the passage that we get um, when he sees the army coming out of Morgul in the next chapter. Frodo stirred, and suddenly his heart went out to Faramir. The storm has burst at last, he thought. This great array of spears and swords is going to Osgiliath. Will Faramir get across in time? He guessed it, but did he know the hour? And who can now hold the fords when the king of the nine riders comes? And other armies will come. I am too late. All is lost. I tarried on the way. All is lost. Even if my errand is performed, no one will ever know. There will be no one I can tell. It will be in vain. Overcome with weakness, he wept, and still the host of Morgul crossed the bridge. Frodo raised his head and then stood up. Despair had not left him, but the weakness had passed. He even smiled grimly, feeling now as clearly as a moment before he had felt the opposite, that what he had to do, he had to do, if he could and that whether Faramir, or Aragorn, or Elrond, or Galadriel, or Gandalf, or anyone else ever knew about it was beside the purpose. He took his staff in one hand, and the file in his other. So what do we see happening here? This is not hope, right? Having just had a glimpse of hope, right? Having had hope built with him, and his faith uh, in, you know, light, and in sort of the big picture, refreshed, uh, at the crossroads, now he is in despair. Despair, clearly meaning uh, despair for his for the success, like despair that the good guys are going to win. Despair that the the story is going to have a happy ending, right? You know, he's not notice. He's not saying I'm never going to get the ring there now, right? No, he's saying even if I do get the ring there now, it's not going to matter. Right, the whole land, you know, all of the land out to the west of here is going to be laid in ruin. Um, so even if I do overthrow Sauron, it'll be too late. So awesome. So not only is there still very little chance of my succeeding, now it doesn't even matter if I do or not. Why should I even bother? That seems to be the temptation that he is confronting here. It will be in vain. Right? It's it's useless. Not only was it hopeless from the beginning, now it's useless too. So even if even if I do beat the very long odds against me and succeed, it's not going to accomplish anything. Right? Um, and in his response is to smile grimly and to be determined to do what he has to do. What do we make of this? 
Let's see. Yeah, as case uh, K is reminded of Aragorn's statement um, when it looks like they're never going to find Marion Pit. Marion Pippin, he says, this may be the end of hope, uh, but not to toil. You know, remember Gimli saying, is this the end of all of our hope and our of our hope and all our toil? And Aragorn responds cheerfully by saying, to hope maybe, but not to toil. <laughs> we, uh, you know, no, we've still got plenty of work to do, even if we don't have any hope. Um, yes, yes. One thing that is clear, one thing that is that is consistent among all of these people is uh, your odds of success cannot be a factor in your determination to carry on and do the thing, right? Um, and, and of course, here, defining success in a broad way, because, again, this is not about the success of his quest for the Cracks of Doom. It's for the bigger picture. Um, but, um, but, yeah, even when hope ends, toil goes on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I agree with Alyssa. Uh, Frodo is here having... Um, a northern courage moment. This is a very, uh, a very sort of, uh, you know, a Nordic, very, very, you know, uh, Germanic, uh, heroic legend kind of moment here. Um, uh, it's one of the things that's so remarkable, that, as Tolkien pointed out many times, so remarkable about Norse mythology is the whole thing is hopeless. Uh, I mean, uh, everybody knows the bad guys are going to win, um, and the gods are eventually going to be destroyed, and everything's going going down, but mm, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's the way it is. You go ahead, and you do it anyway, and you, you, you become more determined. That's what, that's what heroes do, is become more determined. Uh, uh, their strength harder uh, as, uh, as hope falters. Um, I'm here vaguely paraphrasing and largely butchering um, a line from the Battle of Molden um, uh, in saying that. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, Don was just saying the same thing about that that uh, that northern courage. Um, uh, it does, Don says, fighting for the losing side uh, is better, it's more courageous than fighting for the side whose victory is assured. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay, let's see. Chris, I agree. Uh, Chris says, I'm fascinated by the final line. Me too. I almost stopped before that last sentence. I almost stopped, uh, the, our passage here with, uh, um, ever knew about it was beside the purpose because that sort of finishes the statement about, uh, you know, hope and despair, uh, that I really wanted to talk about. But the, the, the imagery there, again, another one of those descriptive moments which seems to suggest so much more than the words literally say. He took his staff in one hand and the file in his other. Um, <clears throat> yes, carrying uh, Goadriel's file, which contains the light of Arendil's star, um, the star of high hope, Gil Estel, in one hand, uh, and the staff given to him by Faramir in the other hand, and off he goes. Um, yeah, Chris, I agree. That little tableau, I think, is uh, very evocative. Um, yeah. Okay, that's an interesting observation. Kay says, uh, th- this, uh, this seems to be the same as the means versus ends ethic. Characters must constantly do their part, regardless of what they predict the ends will be. Characters must choose the, the clear good duty before them, regardless 
of the ends. Um, because even the wise cannot see all ends. So yeah, you can't give up just because it looks like everything is lost. Because everything it looks like everything is hopeless. Apart from the northern courage thing. Apart from the fact that going on and persevering, even in the face of despair, is what you're supposed to do. Um, apart from that, as Kay points out, the, and, and Kay, I think that that's the... You hit upon the way in which the sort of the the ethics of the Lord of the Rings differ from the the Norse tradition. Um, there is hope. There, hope is an important element in ways in which hope is absent uh, in Norse mythology. Hope, in the larger sense, is absent. Um, hope is definitely present. And K, exact, you know, the, even the wise can't see all ends. Um, so yeah, does it look pretty hopeless? Yeah, yeah, sure it does. But, I mean, come on! Everything has looked hopeless from the beginning. Uh, you can't let that stop you. You shouldn't let that stop you. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Good. Um, yeah. Excellent. Um, Oh, Rachel, nice observation here. Rachel says, even though Frodo's speech ends in despair, he started with pity or concern for others, specifically Faramir. Even in his circumstances of danger, he thinks of his friends. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I think that that's a, that's a, that, that, that's a nice observation. Um, Matthew points out, thinking about the staff and the file, that the staff and file are both tools of support. The staff to support him physically and the file to support him spiritually. Um, that's a neat way to think about it. You know, both are things which are designed. That's that's why I think the gift of the of the of the staves that um, Frodo and Sam get here um, is a a very apt kind of gift because um, you know he 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 is he is literally helping them along their way in every way that he can. Right? I I, I'm, I, I will support you on the journey. Um, Physically, even as much as I can, with these, with these, with these sort of blessed staves that I will give you. Um, so yeah, Matthew, I think it's a really great way to think about it. Um, yeah, good. Um, I want to. Um, well, I want to move from here to thinking about the uh, sort of the bigger picture that they get in the. After all of this stuff, you know, we get that glimpse of hope at the crossroads, Frodo's determination in the face of despair there in Morgul Vale. Um, getting now to the uh, the famous conversation that Frodo and Sam have about stories uh, on the stairs of Kirith Ungol. And I want to be thinking about this in this context, thinking about hope and faith you know, in the way that we've been talking about that Um and the way that this stuff informs their decisions. And think about Sam's comments about stories in that regard. I don't like anything here at all, said Frodo. Step or stone, breath or bone, earth, air, and water all seem accursed, but so our path is laid. Uh, now, I know that Mike Thurway is about to point out how beautifully poetic Frodo's statement there is, right? How Frodo has just, um, uh, you know, sort of modulated uh, with careful alliteration, <clears throat> with those you know the the two balanced pairs, then expanding to the triplet: step or stone, breath or bone, earth, air, and water all seem accursed. Um, really, uh, uh, really, uh, really, 
really wonderful moment. So again, it's Frodo sort of triggers this literary discussion that Sam is going to with this highly poetic utterance. Um, so yes, yes, in honor of Mike joining us today, we have we have a little little bonus style time. Um, anyway, <clears throat> yes, that's so," said Sam. And we shouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about it before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo. Adventures, as I used to call them. I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for, because they wanted them. Because they were exciting, and life was a bit dull. A kind of sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered, or the ones that stay in the mind. Folk seem to have been just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you, at least not to what folk inside a story, and not outside it, call a good end. Um, I want I want to draw our attention to the way, the implication of Sam's words here, um, in for the question of doom and choice that we've sort of been talking about uh, and I have you know boldly touched on the question of of free will and predestination before um, and I think that this is a place where we can actually another place where we can actually see Tolkien kind of bringing these ideas together um, Frodo says so our path is laid we have no choice right this is the doom that is laid out for it. He's been speaking in those ways, which I was initially tempted to call fatalistic, right? And there are still moments which are which are kind of fatalistic, you know, where he where he seems to speak as if we don't really have a choice. This is just kind of how things are, and um, and uh, and we just kind of have to go along with it. Sam picks up on that. It's that comment, but so our path is laid, which leads Sam into his discussion of the brave things in old tales and songs. Right? He says, you know, it's. I suppose it's often that way. Um, what is? About the choice. He said, we shouldn't have been here at all if we'd known more about it before we started. Had we known exactly what this would be like, we never would have agreed, back in the Council of Elrond, to come on this quest. But we did agree. So he's going, he's looking back at a choice that they made and said, we made this choice. So you notice, interestingly, Frodo starts off with saying, so our path is laid with a statement which sounds more fatalistic, Sam responds by saying, yeah, we really put our foot in it, didn't we? Thinking of the expression he uses at the time. Um, The expression he just used. Um, uh, No, the expression he used at the time is a nice pickle it is. Uh, You know, that they've gotten themselves into a nice pickle. He foresees, he doesn't foresee all the details, but he foresees in general terms that it's going to be a nice pickle. Um, But, so again, he emphasizes choice. Um, and recognizes, however, that Frodo's right about the path being laid in a certain way. And he recognizes that the adventures that he read about, the great tales uh, in the stories that he has heard, are not, in fact, recreational things. In other words, they're not things which are just 100% choice. The people, the, the wonderful folk of the stories, didn't just go out and look for fun things to do. Their paths were laid this way. These dooms were put upon them. They were... Folks seem to have been just landed in them, he said. And then he quotes them, Your path, their paths were laid that way, right? Um, the, in the great tales, people get into the stories, and they don't actually have much of a choice about getting into them. But then he, comes, but then he backs off again. 
Right? It was all about choice. And I used to think that people just... But now I realize... Now I realize it's not all about choice. That there really is a doom involved. There really is a destiny that puts people in these particular circumstances, whether they choose it or not. But now notice he goes back again. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. Right? There is still choice. Even if you are, even if your path is laid in a particular way, that doesn't mean you are being compelled to walk down that path. You can turn and leave the path. You can turn around and walk back the other way down the path. You do, in fact, have that capability. It is an active choice. Frodo makes the choice to persevere in the face of despair. He grips his staff, and he grips his file, and he sets off walking in the direction of the stairs, he didn't have to do that. He's not compelled to do that. That is his choice, right? And that's what Sam emphasizes. Um, those, And notice he doesn't just suggest it's theoretically possible that people like Baron and Tenuviel could have chosen otherwise and not done what they did. But he even recognizes that probably lots of people did make that choice. That, there, that over the course of history, there have probably been many circumstances where people were, were put in a path you know that uh, that was hard. Um, were 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 placed in a situation where they you know had the op- the opportunity the option to um, uh, you know this this sort of doom was placed upon them, but they did back out of it. They didn't follow through. They failed, and were forgotten. Who knows how many of them there were? We wouldn't we would we wouldn't have any way of knowing because of course they would be forgotten once they had done that. Um, I guess, of course, we should, as Sharon is reminding me, uh, make an exception for those who choose so spectacularly badly that history remembers them for that, like Turin. Um, but I shouldn't. I shouldn't spend another session teasing poor Turin. Um, uh, but uh, anyway. Um, and, of course, he then points out the next thing, which is that, of course... It's not even... Unfortunately, the choice is not a straightforward choice. That is to say, okay, if your path is laid out for you, a simple thing would be to say, well, obviously, if a path is laid out before you, you follow that, right? Because if Providence has laid out a path before you, obviously, Providence knows best. So even though it looks kind of sketchy, you should follow that path because um, because it's going to lead you to where you need to go. I'm, I'm reminded here... If you have read... Uh, how many of you have read George MacDonald's Princess and the Goblin? If you haven't, do it. It is one of the classics of modern fantasy. You must absolutely... One of the foundation stones of modern fantasy. You absolutely must read this book. Um, those of you who have read it will know what I'm thinking of. That is, I'm thinking of the thread that Irene follows. Irene's fairy grandmother person... Um, has this magic thread that she tells Irene to follow, and Irene has to put her finger on the thread, and she can only follow it forward. If she turns back, it goes away. So she can only follow it forward, and it leads her into danger. It leads her right into the goblins, into the heart of the goblins' realm. So here she is, this like unaccompanied eight-year-old princess on her own, walking through the goblin realm, following her grandmother's thread. And she has to maintain her faith in her grandmother's thread. If she follows it, she will be preserved from all harm, and she will be brought to safety, and to uh, and everything will turn out really well as long as she follows the thread. Sam points out 
that um, uh, yeah, I know she's not just her grandmother. She's her great, huge grandmother, uh, as Irene says. But anyway, um, uh, um, the difference here, right? Sam says, okay, guess what? If you do follow the thread, if you follow the path that destiny lays before your feet, guess what? Uh, you could just end up in a world of suffering. This does not guarantee, like it does guarantee to Irene and the Princess of the Goblin, that you're going to come through all right, and that your path will be steered so that no harm will come to you. In fact, not all of them, as he points out, came to a good end. Mind you, at least not what folk inside a story, and not outside it would call a good end. Um, Some tragic endings are beautiful, and are powerful, and may be good, in one sense, that is good to read about. Um, but not fun to experience. Uh, certainly nobody to whom it's happening would consider it a good ending, right? Um, so again, so notice sort of the way in which Sam is kind of wrestling with how destiny, how doom and choice really go together here. And then, of course, he this leads him to see their own choices and their own situation in a bigger picture. Baron now. He never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown in Thangorodrum, and yet he did. And that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and came to Aarindil, and why, sir, I never thought of that before. We've got, you've got, some of the light of it in that star glass that the lady gave you. Why to think of it? We're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? He recognizes this sort of literary discussion he'd just gotten into, thinking about these old stories as illustrations, and clearly, I think, in the context, especially of what Frodo has just said, um, wrestling with its applicability to them. You know, what does this suggest about us and about our choices and about, you know, what we should do and how we should navigate this path? Um, you know, do we follow this path or do we turn away? Um, and what happens and, you know, and and what comes of it? Um, in doing that, he suddenly realizes that he's not just thinking about these old stories and applying them to their situation. He's recognizing that their situation is part of the old stories. Um, that that these things, in fact, all come together. Uh, and that the great tales never really have an end. That there is, in fact, a real continuity between these. So again, this is not um, the old tales which he seemed to be, at least initially, inclined to think of as distant, right? He had this imagination about how the wonderful folk in the old tales were just, like, obviously totally different than us, right? You know, they have nothing in common with us. You know, we aren't anything like the great heroes of the old stories um, who, like, went out and rescued Silmarils and stuff, like, for fun because... um, you know, they were having a boring month, um, so they decided to go kill a dragon or something for recreation. I mean, that's Sam is sort of, um, uh, you know, parodying uh, his own sort of simplistic uh, initial assumptions about stories and the heroes of the old stories. Um, and what he, of course, now recognizes is not only are they not really fundamentally different from us, like they are us, we are we are in the same position. We are we are characters 
not just characters in a parallel story, we're characters in the same story. Um, the same issues faced by Baron and Luthien are being faced by Frodo and Sam now. There's more to it than just parallelism. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a way. It's an interesting way of thinking about it, Mike. Mike says that uh, you know Sam's mental agility and his imagination, his wrestling with these ideas, provide deeper grounds for his optimism and his cheer. He seems to be able to see himself outside of himself. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that that's something that that Sam does. Um, yeah, I mean, just to take one really simple contrast, um, think of Boromir and how Boromir. Um, Boromir fails at this very significantly. Um, that is, of thinking of himself outside of himself. Right? He gets so caught up in his own thoughts and in his own desires. Um, he doesn't sort of stop uh, to think about and to sort of recognize what he's doing and what he's thinking. The whole Sam's whole appro- approach here is very different. I, I, I am inclined um, to think that there's... Um, you know th- that it that it has something to do with Sam's humility. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Chris says he's inclined to be uh, surprised about Sam's knowledge of the Silmaril story. Well, remember, Aragorn sings part of that story to them in verse under Weathertop, and then tells them another version in prose uh, immediately afterwards. And then promises that when they get to Rivendell, they'll hear it told in full, and we're told that they do. So we know that they've heard the story in Rivendell, and quite possibly more than once. So they would know it. But it is certainly interesting that they make the comparison. I mean, it, in in one way, it's a, it's it's an ob- it's the the most obvious parallel of all the Silmarillion stories. It's the most obvious parallel to their current situation. Here we are, just the two of us, trying to break all alone into the stronghold of the enemy. Hey, wait, that happened before, didn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Tom points out, interestingly, that Aragorn says at Weathertop that the end of Baron and Luthien's story is not known. Um, yeah, well, of course it's not known. It's still going on. Um, <laughs> Ed points out, this means that Warner Brothers owns the rights to the, Luthien, the Baron and Luthien story. Oh, Ed, let's not go there. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. And of course they heard about uh, Arendelle straight from Bilbo. Um, one last point that I would make about this before we go on is uh, I think that there's also a clear cue here for the reader. Um, you know, There's a, a wonderful way in which Sam's um, literary analysis here sort of extrapolates. Here's a character in this story talking about reading the characters in Olds. So we're reading a story which is supposed to be an ancient to us story about heroes of old who did this great thing. And in that story that we're reading, one of those heroes talks about reading ancient stories about old heroes and how he didn't realize that he was just like them and that he is in a sim- of the same situation and that, in fact, he's part of that same story. You see the logical sort of extrapolation. There seems to me a kind of an invitation for us as readers to say, 
hey, actually, you know, maybe there is a sense in which we too are still in the same story because the great tales don't actually ever end. Yes, as Emily says, three cheers for meta narratives. Absolutely. Um, this is, of course, why like every every English professor who likes Tolkien loves the passage of Sam and the the the, the stairs of Kirathungal because uh, you know we uh, we we postmodern English professors just can't get enough of meta narrative. Uh, but anyway, let's. Uh, there are two other things that I wanted to talk about tonight. I'm determined to get to at least one of them, uh, so let's do that. The first of those two things I wanted to talk about is a choice that Frodo makes. Another uh, sort of decision moment, though it might not sort of seem exactly like one at first. Another way of thinking about these passages, or sort of another question uh, implied in these passages, is... Um, uh, just basically, what the heck is going on with Frodo? Um, there are a couple odd moments. I want to make sure that we're uh, unpacking them, and I want you to—I I, want to see what you guys think about my own readings of these passages, and see if you think I'm right because I might not be um, in how I'm understanding these passages because they're—they're they're ones which I was not confident in my reading of for a long time. Um, I want to see what we think. Here's Frodo um, when he's. Uh, and I was talking about the descriptions before, and how sometimes when you're in a long passage of description, uh, some people—not Mike Thurway, I know—but some people uh, can get kind of tempted to to sort of use kind of your mind kind of goes to sleep for a little bit until something else happens, and you're just kind of registering, yeah, you know, hills, trees, yeah, got it, trees, more trees, okay, good. Um, so similar here, there's this a passage here which I don't even know how many times. I read this without even really registering what was going on, just because I didn't understand it. It was so weird. Um, and I just, like, leapt past it. Um, From mead to mead the bridge sprang. This is the description of the Morgul Vale. Uh, Figures stood there at its head, carven with cunning, in forms human and bestial, but all corrupt and loathsome. The water flowing beneath was silent, and it steamed, but the vapor that rose from it, curling and twisting about the bridge, was deadly cold. Frodo felt his senses reeling and his mind darkening. Then suddenly, as if some force were at work other than his own will, he began to hurry, tottering forward, his groping hands held out, his head lolling from side to side. Both Sam and Gollum ran after him. Sam caught his master in his arms as he stumbled and almost fell right on the threshold of the bridge. So my first question, what just happened to Frodo here? Why is Frodo doing like the zombie run towards the, uh, to, you know, with his his hands held out and his head like long around and he's running towards the bridge? What is going on here? Um, why is Frodo doing this? That's my first question. Um, well, let's keep reading here. Frodo passed his hand over his brow and wrenched his eyes away from the city on the hill. The luminous tower fascinated him, and he fought the desire that was on him to run up the gleaming road toward its gate. At last, with an effort, he turned back, and as he did so, he felt the ring resisting him, dragging at the chain about his neck, and his eyes, too, as he looked away, seemed for the moment to have been blinded. The darkness before him was impenetrable. Okay. Mike suggested tractor beam. Um, 
that's uh, that's very plausible, Mike. I think that's probably it. Yeah, you know, I wasn't thinking in those terms, which is why I was doubtless making too much of it. Um, okay, Diego wants to attribute this to the ring. This is the ring trying to get noticed by the Nazgul. Um, um, <laughs> Dima says it sounds like he's got a really bad migraine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I, I can see that. Um, Tom says the ring is making a break for it and dragging Frodo along with it. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. There seem to me to be two factors involved here. Frodo says, you know, he feels as if some other power, other than his own will, some other force were at work, other than his own will. He says. So, question is, what force exactly is at work here? There seem to be two things, right? One is the power in Morgul Vale itself. Um, we're getting the description of the river and that cold steam that comes off it. Uh, there is clearly power. There is clearly what some people would call magic at work here in the Morgul Vale. Um, so, that's one possibility, that this is this is the power of the Morgul Vale acting on Frodo, and there seems to be a certain amount of evidence in support of this. The Luminous Tower fascinated him, and he fought the desire that was on him to run up the gleaming road towards its gate. Is he being drawn, in some sense? Is there, in, uh, in some way, a uh, sort of a, a, a figurative tractor beam drawing him into the... Um, dragging him towards the uh, uh, towards the towards the city, um, and of course the other factor is the ring. Is he in, as Chris says, a ring-induced zombie state? Um, you know that that's of course one of the other obvious candidates for a force acting upon Frodo uh, that is other than his own will. I think there is also some pretty clear evidence that the ring is in fact acting on him. Um, Jordan says, His eyes seem the main part. They are fascinated by the tower. Even the road glimmers uh, is a fair-sounding dis- description. And afterwards, he's temporarily blinded. Um, uh, <laughs> saying that, you know, Frodo has to be careful. Uh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, yes. Um, when he looked away... He seemed for the moment to have been blinded. The darkness before him was impenetrable. And you know what that reminds me of? You remember that passage? We didn't talk about it at the time. Um, back in chapter one of book four, uh, when Frodo was on the cliffside, and the storm comes in, and it starts raining, and the wraith flies overhead, and they hear the scream, and everybody's freaking out, and Frodo slides down the cliff uh, and lands on a ledge, and he's blinded? You know, he can't see anything, and Sam is up there like, why the heck can't he see anything? I can see him. Um, it's dim, but it's not pitch dark, and he can't see anything until the rope descends, and then the rope seems to shimmer in the dark, and then Frodo can see again, and he says, you know, Sam, I thought I'd been stri- stricken blind. Um, that blindness seems to be very similar to this blindness. Um and that blindness, too, was associated, not with Minas Morgul, but with the wraiths, right? You know, the, the, the influence of the wraith as it flew overhead um, seemed to act on Frodo, creating this, uh, this blindness. Um, 
so what do you think? What do you think? I, to what what extent is this Frodo being acted on by Morgul Vale, and to what extent is this being ha- having the Ring acting on him? Um, I think myself that both are um, at work. Um, yeah, I, I agree with uh, Carol and, and with. Um, um, yeah, Tom, before I talk about the, the ring making a break for it. Um, uh, the ring is clearly wanting to reveal itself to the Witch King. I mean, that's... the um, This passage, by the way, is, I think, the clearest evidence that the ringwraiths do not simply... Um, do not detect the presence of the ring in nearly as simple and straightforward a way as a lot of people think about. Remember Aragorn tells Frodo the ring draws them, um, and um, there's... A lot of people take that as sort of thinking that basically, you know, it's like the, the, the... Ring wraiths have this sensor, you know, that they can they can they can pick up on the presence of the ring, and it's like you know it's it's like uh, you know they can tell when they're getting warmer and when they're getting cold. That that clearly isn't the case. Clearly isn't the case. If they could sense the simple presence of the ring, the witch king would have sensed it. I mean, he's standing. He's in his own valley. He's near the center of his own power, and the ring is right there. It's like yards away from him. He obviously cannot simply detect the proximity of the ring. Now, if Frodo puts it on, he'd be able to sense it because Frodo would then enter into the wraith world. And he'd be like, "Oh, he'd be pop into sight right there, right?" I mean, he would be suddenly rendering himself visible. Um, to the Witch King, um, as he did in on Weathertop when he made himself visible to them. Um, but clearly, they don't simply just sense the presence of the ring when it's there and not being used and not being claimed. So, um, but the ring does clearly want to reveal itself to them. We see the ring being relatively cunning, actually. Notice that it not only... It, it's not just a question of the ring sensing the presence of the ring wraiths. Um, the ring even f- seemed to figure out that it would be a good idea to make Frodo put the ring on in the prancing pony, despite the fact that the ring wraiths are not there in the room. Um, you know, so again, it's not just a question of if I detect, you know, the, the, the ring is not simply doing some kind of proximity calculation, right? Um, so I think it's it seems a fairly safe bet to me that the ring is acting on Frodo, and I am tempted to ascribe that blindness uh, to the ring as well. That the the blindness is something that is brought upon Frodo when he is turning away. He is trying to conceal himself from... He is refusing to expose himself to the wraith that's flying overhead, and he's trying to conceal himself instead. And as a result... As a consequence, he is stricken blind, and he can't see here. When he turns away, with an effort, he turned back, and as he did so, he felt the ring resisting him, dragging at the chain, and his eyes, too, as he looked away, in parallel with the dragging of the ring, his eyes, too, seemed for the moment to have been blinded. The parallel there suggests the ring is doing both, I think. Um, But I don't think that means that the fascination and that positive drawing towards the city is just about the ring itself. But, notice Sam's not doing a zombie thing. 
going towards Minas Morgul. In fact, Sam seems to be quite in his right mind and not at all tempted to get any closer to Minas Morgul. And although we all know that Sam uh, is extremely awesome, I don't think that this is a measure of Sam's awesomeness. I think this is the fact that Frodo is made more susceptible to this. Um, That the way in which he is being twisted by the ring, the kind of hold that the ring has over him, is what makes him particularly susceptible uh, to Minas Morgul here. Um, and as you know, in especially in conjunction with the ring's positive uh, um, desire to reveal itself. Um, yeah, yeah, good, um, good. Yeah, yeah. Chris is just pointing out the same thing. Um, yeah, you're right, Carolyn. It does. Uh, um, it's just the ring might may not have a personality, but it has a will with a one-track mind. I want to go home to Daddy. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, Diego, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, Diego's pointing out that, you know, Smeagol, who certainly is plenty corrupted and twisted by the ring, does not seem to be drawn towards Venus Morgul in the same way. Um, but, it, but then Diego immediately adds, but it is Frodo who currently has the ring. Um, yeah, I mean, it's Frodo who is, uh, and I think again of, um, I think again of Gandalf's, uh, Gandalf's words about Gollum being free of the ring and, and in some ways stronger now because the ring is no longer, you know, eating him away. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, but, uh, Look at where Frodo goes from here. This is now, after this, they've just barely concealed themselves. This is when the Witch King stops at the bridge and um, seems to be sensing that something's going on. Even as these thoughts pierced him with dread and held him bound as with a spell, the rider halted suddenly. That is, the thoughts are, oh my gosh, that's... That's the Lord of the Nazgul. That's the guy who stabbed me. His shoulder aches, right? Um, he's recognizing this is the Lord of the Nine of the of the of, of the Black Riders, um, uh, and he's leading this army. Even as these thoughts pierced him with dread and held him bound as with a spell, the rider halted suddenly, right before the entrance of the bridge, and behind him all the hosts stood still. There was a pause, a dead silence. Maybe it was the ring that called to the Wraith Lord, and for a moment he was troubled. Sensing some other power within his valley, the ring is like over here. No, he can tell there's something. There's, there's, there's something. There's something here, but he doesn't know what it is. This way and that turned the dark head, helmed and crowned with fear, sweeping the shadows with its unseen eyes. Frodo waited like a bird at the approach of a snake, unable to move, fascinated again. And as he waited, he felt, more urgent than ever before, the command that he should put on the ring. But great as the pressure was, he felt no inclination now to yield to it. He knew that the ring would only betray him, and that he had not, even if he put it on, the power to face the Morgul king. Not yet. There was no longer any answer to that command in his own will, dismayed by terror though it was, and he felt only the beating upon him of a great power from outside. Now, the change, I think, that is being emphasized here... I'm sorry for interrupting the passage, but I just want to comment on that sentence before we move on. Um, Remember, Frodo's been tempted by the ring many times before, 
But usually, that, te- that temptation took the form of the kind of rationalization and self-deception that we've seen so frequently happen. Um, we see it happen very strongly with Boromir. Um, uh, you know, sort of Goadriel kind of gives us a case study of how it would work. Um, uh, self-consciously provides a case study. Um, here, the ring is just using an entirely different tactic, right? There's no response to it in his own will. There's no question of him being tempted to put on the ring. He's not being tempted. He's being overwhelmed. His own will, his own strength. The ring is now just trying to to, to take him over, um, to daunt and suppress his will, rather than to excite it and manipulate it. Notice, though, one little exception to this. The words, not yet, seem to me to be the one small way in which Frodo's will still is... It's not that the ring has completely given up on him. Um, I love that uh, he had not the power to face the Morgul king. Not yet. Right? Like, in his own mind, Frodo still harbors the idea. He's not tempted because he's like, look, I know for a fact if I put this ring on now, he can't be deceived by the ring. He knows if he puts the ring on, the witch king is going to come, is going to see him and is going to destroy him and take the ring... There, there's, there's, there's no way. Frodo cannot be deceived about that. But there's still the little proviso, right? Someday I might grow very strong. I might grow strong enough to oppose the Witch King. I'm not there yet, right? I, I got to build up a little bit more. But you know, someday maybe I could take him down, right? There's just that very brief little flash of maybe I could do it, right? Someday, uh, not now. Right. Um, it's okay. Notice, even in the midst of this, like just doing the power play here, the ring is still. There's a tiny little hint of that kind of manipulation. Anyway, the great power from outside. It took his hand, and as Frodo watched with his mind, not willing it, but in suspense, as if he looked on some old story far away, you know, like Baron and Luthien or something. It moved the hand inch by inch towards the chain upon his neck. So he's looking at his own hand moving. He is not moving his hand, right? His own will is not responsible for this. His will is being overpowered. His strength is insufficient to overcome the Witch King. His strength is insufficient to overcome the ring. He does not have the power just to say, Hand, stop. Do not grab the ring. I choose not to take the ring. So I'm going to sit here, watch me not put the ring on my finger. He doesn't have the power. His hand is just going to the ring, right? His strength has been overcome, his will has been overruled by this great power from the outside. Then his own will stirred. Slowly, it forced the hand back and set it to find another thing, a thing lying hidden near his breast. Cold and hard, it seemed, as his grip closed on it, the file of Galadriel, so long treasured and almost forgotten till that hour, as he touched it, for a while all thought of the ring was banished from his mind. He sighed and bent his head. So you notice what happened there? Frodo doesn't overcome the power of the ring by the strength of his own mind. His will does stir. His will does assert itself. But not just to stop. Right? He does not simply overcome the power of the ring. He doesn't just say to the ring, no, I'm not going to put you on, sit down and shut up, ring. He, he doesn't do that. He can't say that. But what he can do, he can't stop his hand, but he can divert it. Right? He, he can change the direction. Not to the neck, but to the pocket. And get the file of Galadriel. What he is doing, um, I have with sort of... Um, um, 
uh, with with uh, deliberate provocativeness uh, subtitled this passage Frodo gives up. Um, um, and of course, I don't mean gives up to the ring, but what he does do, the move that he makes here is not to fight against the ring. That is, not to fight against, to, to, to pit his own strength of will against the ring. Um, to do that would be to succumb to it. That's exactly the way the ring wants you to think, that you are strong enough, that you can command, right? That's the whole, that's the whole temptation, right? Instead, he does the only thing that he can do, the only way that he can actually emerge from this situation. He gives up. He recognizes his own will can't... So what does he do? He gets help, right? Um, he needs help. He can't do this on his own. So there is, remembered at the last second, another power that he can appeal to, right? Um, turns out there's more than one other power in the, which, in, in the Wraith Lord's Valley uh, this day. In fact, uh, the, 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 the valley is crowded with other powers, uh, there are two of them right there under Frodo's clothing. One is the ring, and the other is the file. And as he touches it, all thought of the ring was banished from his mind. What has clearly happened is the power that is there in the file, the power of Galadriel, but not only the power of Galadriel, the power also of Arendil, the Silmaril, and the Valar, who put him up in the sky and set him as the Star of High Hope, um, those things now are also brought into play, and what they do is simply kill the thought of the ring. They, you know, they seem to, to, um, you know, bring the, uh, you know, bring the, uh, bring the, the door down, um, uh, between Frodo and the power of the ring. They just cut off the power of the ring and his own mind, his own will is now free again from that overwhelming um, force that was being brought against him. Had he simply tried to oppose the ring, it wouldn't have worked. But now this does work. Um, yeah, now good, let me uh, go back and look at a bunch of the comments that you guys have been making here. Um, uh Yeah, yeah, Tom says, so it's the ring itself that's commanding him to put it on. Yes, I think so. Um, Tom, for a long time, I read this passage as the Witch King commanding him. And, you know, that like the, the Witch King is looking around and that it's the command of his enemy, the Witch King. Um, and I think what led me to think that is that that's the way the narrator talks after Weathertop, right? When uh, Frodo wakes up and he... Uh, he he criticizes himself for weakness of will because he recognizes that it wasn't his own thought to put on the ring, but that he was just obeying the commanding thought of his enemies. Um, but there's a difference. Th so it does. So, so there we see the Witch King, in fact, operating on him in that way, right? The, the Wraith Lord knows that he's there and is, in fact, bending his will to try to manipulate, to, to try to, to command um, Frodo to put on the ring and reveal himself, presumably the ring also cheerfully assisting uh, in, this, um, in this project. Since that dynamic is raised back in Weathertop, I always carried that in my mind through to this passage and imagined that it was the Witch King's power that was, command that was overwhelming Frodo here. 
But then I was sort of recognizing sort of two things. First, I realized that that didn't actually make any sense because if the Witch King knew he was there and was trying, then he would have presumably stopped, right? I mean, the Witch King wouldn't have carried on and be like, oh, nothing to see here, right? I mean, if he knew Frodo was there and he's like, put on the ring, Frodo. Clearly, he's not. He's he's gonna he's gonna put off his attack for uh, at least an hour or two to go try and find the ring. So, um, so clearly, there cannot be that kind of a conscious thing here like there was at at, at Weathertop. And then also looking more closely at the uh, at the description here, it's pretty clear that um, that it's the ring itself that's that's commanding him. Um, yeah, good. Um, Interesting. Kay, Kay asks, maybe this is how Faramir experienced the ring in a sense, that he was, you know, he says he doesn't feel any temptation uh, because he saw the ring's appeal as an outside force, not something he desired from within himself. Maybe, I mean, I certainly don't get the sense, Kay, that Faramir experienced any, you know, that the ring tried to, you know, carry on this kind of a blitz on him um, as it does on Frodo. I, I, I'm not sure it could, but, but Kay, I do see what you mean, that, um, Thinking back to what we were saying, you know, Mike, what you were saying about Sam, um, how Sam can sort of see outside, see himself outside himself, and that that gives him a kind of strength and a kind of flexibility. Faramir um, then could sort of be even more sort of self-aware in that way, so that if he does experience temptation to take the ring, he immediately recognizes it as an externally imposed upon him temptation, and not in, in that he sees it as his own desires being manipulated, not as an expression of his own desire. Maybe, Kay. I mean, maybe that's sort of the, the secret to overcoming it. Um, certainly, if you go back and look at the things that the other characters who successfully resist the ring say, um, the way they talk is kind of like that. Gandalf and Galadriel, I'm thinking, in particular. Again, Galadriel's whole, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen's speech. That's exactly what she's doing, right? She says, um, yeah, I'd, um, here's what would happen. Here's here's why I'm thinking this would be a good idea, here's what my rationale would be, but here's what would actually happen, right? And and again, Gandalf, too, saying, you know, the way of the ring, you know, the the ring's way to my heart is through pity and the desire to do good, right? You know, he knows the way he's going to be manipulated, and he's like, I'm not even going there, right? I I dare not take it, um, because I know how it would try to manipulate me. Um, But, um, you know, Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, very cool. Yeah, uh, Alyssa is sort of pointing uh, on, on on the same lines of the not yet. Right. Uh, he um, he didn't have the power to face the the Morgul King. Not yet. Uh, Alyssa is pointing also to the ambivalence of the maybe. There was a pause, a dead silence. Maybe it was the ring that called to the Wraith Lord, and for a moment he was troubled, sensing some other power within his valley. Um, maybe it was the ring. Maybe it was Frodo. Maybe you know Frodo is growing and more powerful that he could, you know, maybe maybe he's almost ready to oppose the Witch King, right? Uh, maybe. Maybe. Probably not. But maybe. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, maybe he was, right, as, as 
Diego is recalling, of course, and Diego is exactly what I was thinking of when I said that. Um, like he could become the, you know, as Gollum says, maybe we get very strong, right? Uh, stronger than wraiths. The Gollum. The, yeah, yes, the Gollum. Most precious Gollum. Um, Gollum the Great. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be potentially the direction there. Um, yeah, good. Kay asks, do I think this is how Frodo experiences the final moment at the Cracks of Doom? It's not Frodo giving into the ring, but Frodo gone entirely and taken over by the outside force? Not going there, Kay. Not going to answer that. we got to wait and look at the passages. Um, but I will say, we have this added to our vocabulary now. This is clearly a thing that um, Tolkien puts into play, right? That when somebody does something, it's not... Your will is not always perfectly free. Sometimes your will might not be constrained by destiny, but can be constrained by other things, like things that are stronger than you and can compel you to do things that you do not choose to do. Um, Unfortunately, even creatures with free will are therefore not entirely free because their actions can be constrained by other things that have free will and whose power is greater than theirs. Um, yeah. Yeah, let's see. Um, yeah, yeah. Jordan, I agree. Uh, Jordan says uh, that this that it's it's a very Christian idea that temptation is defeated with God's help and not by our own strength. Likewise, Frodo draws upon a source outside himself for strength. Yeah, I, I mean, the two things. Make sure I'm doing one of my patented. Let me stop saying this before I feel confident that it's true. I'll go ahead and say it anyway. The two elements that I think are most persistently Christian in the sort of, uh, you know, the, the moral themes of this story are hope and humility. Those are the two things I always come back to. Um, sacrifice, to some extent, though in a sense to me that's actually sort of a subset of humility in the way that I'm thinking about it. Um, so, but so Jordan, I would put this in the humility uh, camp, um, that, yeah, it's not by your own strength, um, uh, that Frodo succeeds here. Uh, Frodo is saved here um, by this choice that he makes to seek for help beyond himself. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good, good. Jordan says, are we, sh- are we even sure the Witch King feels a disturbance? Um, yeah, I mean, looking at that, if we look at just the syntax of that sentence again, maybe it was the ring that called to the Witch Lord, and for a moment he was troubled. The, qu- the, question, the syntactic question is, does the maybe carry over? That is, is it only being brought to us as a possibility 
that he is troubled? I think not. I think what we're getting at here is an indicative statement. For a moment, he was troubled, sensing some other power within his valley. That definitely happened. He was definitely troubled, and he definitely sensed some other power within his valley. Maybe it was the ring ring that called to the Wraith Lord, leading to that definite thing. And that's why he looks around. So if you, so one could say, okay, hang on a second, if he feels some other power in his valley, why doesn't he call it off there? I mean, okay, so he doesn't know it's the ring. Still, like, that's pretty suspicious, right? I mean, who's going to be in his valley? Well, he turns aside, or his thought is turned aside um, by, by Frodo. Um, that's... Uh, you know, his his mind is... Frodo's mind is strengthened and turns aside the thought of his enemy. That is, he seems to... He senses some other power within his valley. He seems to move on because he dismisses it. Like, uh, no, I guess I was wrong. Because he doesn't say... He, he, he looks around. Wait, is there something there? Is there something there? And what he finds is, no, no, I don't sense anything. Why? Because his thought has been deflected by Frodo through the file. That's what the file does. Um, almost like a spiritual version of the cloak that he's wearing, right? Um, it uh, it deflects the attention um, of the enemy there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Um, oh, interesting, Kay. Kay is, you know, um, that wonderful image, this way and that turned the dark head, helmed and crowned with fear, sweeping the shadows with its unseen eyes. And Kay is wondering if, if there might be some potential ambiguity here that, um, uh, of course, he does use fear as a weapon, but is there is there a sense in which he himself is afraid uh, in this moment that, that, that he, he is um, crowned with fear in that sense? I don't think. I mean, I, I don't think that's a strong sense here. That is, I certainly don't think Tolkien in this description is inviting us to imagine the Witch King standing in terror. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, Kay, the point that you're making um, on purpose, um, because I don't th- be just you know sort of think about it in that way. I don't think so. But there's certainly. I mean, there's always an irony. Um, to those who use darkness and fear, especially in Tolkien, they tend to be, uh, you know, by their own weapons they will be worsted. Um, that this, you know, uh, uh, so evil will shall evil mar. That oft times is seen. This is the kind of thing that happens quite a bit. Um, there will come a moment where he will have a pause in doubt, not necessarily fear. That is when he realizes that the person he is in fighting, he is fighting, is in fact not a man. But um, uh, but I, so I, I think you know maybe there might be kind of a 
an invitation to perceive a level of irony there, but I don't think it's very strong. Um, yeah, yeah. Can we think the Witch King has more than one moment of doubt? Yeah, sure, I think so. Um, there is some doubt here. It's doubt of a different kind. I don't think he's doubting himself. He doubts himself when he's confronted by Eowyn. I don't think he is doubting himself here. Um, but, uh, yeah, and of course, as Carolyn points out, he is in haste as well. Um, and he does send people to check, just in case. Um, there is word from down below You know that the, the silent watchers are uncertain. Um, there seems to be some... Uh, unease down in Morgul Vale that something was there, so they're checking to make sure. Or at least so we hear from Gorbag later on. Well, the last of the things I wanted to get to was Gollum and Gollum's choice, but that I think I'm going to have to save until next time. Uh, we will start with that, and that's actually... Um, I'm very comfortable doing that, because I think we can then look at it in the context of what we see of Gollum in the last two chapters. Um, so, I'm just as well. I think that's. I think that is. That is. Uh, that 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 will turn out to be a fortunate delay. Um, so we will look at the turning point for Gollum and the Sam Gamgee show next time. But of course, needless to say, it. it um, I will say the very ironic thing. Needless to say, and then proceed to say it. Of course, um, but considering we've been spending four solid weeks coming back again and again to the choices people make and on what basis they make choices and uh, the kind of dilemmas that people are in and the significance of the decisions and the judgments that they make, I don't probably need to mention that since we're going to be talking about a chapter called The Choices of Master Samwise, maybe that's going to come in relevant again and uh, we should be thinking about Sam's choices in the context of Frodo's choice, and Aragorn's choices, and Faramir's choices, and Saruman's choices, and Gandalf's choices, and uh, and Gollum's choices uh, that we see happening here. We'll get uh, uh, a lot of this that we can kind of uh, come together and bring. We have, uh, you know, this book culminates <clears throat> here with this same idea that's been running continually throughout it uh, as we've been studying. So I look forward to Thursday I Thursday afternoon at the normal European-friendly time uh, for those who do not have Yana's dedication and stamina uh, to join us here even in the middle of the night uh, over in Europe. We will be at a much more friendly European time, 4.30 p.m. Eastern time. Um, uh, we, will be, we will be back again on Thursday for our final class. And... Uh, uh, and I will look forward to that. I'm going to, I mentioned before that we will probably do one or two uh, little sort of bonus um, sequences. We'll do one more week in the Silmarillion tradition, uh, this, the Silmarillion seminar tradition, um, because I do want to be able to get to some more, sort of more open questions. These classes have been really um, sort of shaped by the stuff that I wanted to do, the passages I really wanted to look at, um, and I know that I have left left to the side. A lot of topics and things that are totally unrelated that you guys have wanted to talk about. So I want to get a chance to do that. So I want to do a session or two where we go over um, we do some of the some of those things. I go back and look at the, some of the topics that you've suggested and any other questions you have and we'll do a sort of a more open um, kind of Q&A discussion. So we'll probably... so. 
this week will probably not, in fact, be the very last week in which we talk about the two towers, but uh, the last of our regular reading schedule. So, uh, so thanks for joining me, everybody, and uh, I hope you have a good rest of the week. And we will um, look forward to our final session on our final regular session uh, on Thursday. Uh, so, thanks very much. Good night, everybody. Bye.